Let's start today by taking a trip to the Cloud City. Now, where, what is that? Cloud City is a place in Star Wars, right? So hang with me, though. The Millennium Falcon goes to Cloud City uh, to hide from the villains, the Empire, as they're chased. Han Solo has this old friend who lives there. And what our heroes don't know in this situation is that the Empire had already arrived and set a trap for them. So then as things unfold, our main villain, I hope most of you have seen this, uh, but if you haven't, the main villain is Darth Vader, and he betrays this deal that he had made to leave the heroes safely in Cloud City. Now, in the face of objections to his breaking what is essentially the terms of the deal, he, is, he simply asserts to them, I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Now, even, even in a movie, right? That, it's a shocking comment that makes us cringe and feel appalled, namely because we instinctively know, don't we, that once we agree on a deal, we're supposed to keep it. That's how it works. We don't get to change its terms once they're set. And in Galatians 3, 15 to 18, Paul draws on that instinctual knowledge about how we are supposed to relate to one another to explain how God relates to his people and how that plays out across the centuries of redemptive history. Paul's point was that God never alters his deal. More specifically than that, even the differing contours of life throughout the, the various administrations of the covenant of grace, we'll come back to that, don't change the way that God deals with his people concerning their salvation. As we read the Bible from beginning to end, we all know that the outward form of life does change at various places for God's people throughout the ages. Abraham lived in tents, right? As a sojourner, a pilgrim, sealed in the faith through circumcision. Israel lived in the promised land, a, a temple featuring largely on the skyline, making lots of sacrifices. And here we are in the church, after the coming of Christ, gathering under word and sacrament. So those outward forms of life are very different. We have to admit that. We have to reckon with that. And that's for our good. No one questions that, including Paul. The question is, though, the question is, do those differences in how God's people conduct their worship and learn about God's promises do those changes change the way that God truly deals with his people? Paul explained in our passage why the answer to that question has to be no. So the main point, the main point is that God's first promises endure for his people through all generations. God's first promises 
endure for his people through all generations. We're going to think about this in three points. The context, the content, and our counsel. So first, let's, let's think about the context of, of these verses that we're considering. So before unpacking these, these three little verses that we're focusing on today, we need to remind ourselves, we've been in this letter a little while, maybe we need to remind ourselves what's happening. So Paul wrote Galatians to a church struggling to hold firm to a pure understanding of the gospel. Some men had come among the Galatians claiming to represent the significant teachers in Jerusalem, right? Arguing that circumcision was a condition for salvation. Paul's first response to that situation spelled out in chapters 1 and 2 was that he had preached the gospel that Jesus Christ himself had revealed to Paul directly to him, guaranteeing its genuineness as the proper message of salvation. The gospel that Christ had shown to Paul included no condition of circumcision or law-keeping to be saved. So Paul's first response to that is Christ told the gospel to him directly. So he does know what it is. Paul's second response, as we come into chapters 3 and 4, his second response was that biblical history, as it unfolds, reveals that this gospel, this same gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, was always the one way that God dealt with his people. Despite the different outward forms of life God's people have had throughout redemptive history, God has always dealt with his, dealt with his people, dealt with us in the same way. Paul underscores that this one singular gospel means that no one can add conditions to the gospel other than faith in the Savior. So Paul has already pointed this out to us, hasn't he, in, in verses 6 to 9, that Abraham heard the gospel itself and was justified because he believed. Justification, our, our right standing with God, has to be by faith because, why? Verses 10 to 14, sinners are cursed rather than justified by our works. We've broken the law. So we can't earn God's favor. So because our works cannot make us right with God, salvation must be by faith alone. And so we come to our verses for today where Paul argued that why the, why the one plan of salvation by faith alone formalized in this covenant with Abraham, why that one plan must continue as as the one way of salvation throughout the ages, including our own. See, in this situation where people had come from Jerusalem, said, yeah, you got to have faith in Christ, but you also have to do something, Paul knew the objection that was coming. And that's where we are today. Paul knew the objection was coming from those who wanted to add works in addition to faith 
for someone to be saved. What were these people going to say? Yeah, Paul, everybody knows that God promised salvation to Abraham by faith. We know that. But, but then he added the law after that. After the promise, God gave the law at Sinai. So you have to believe and keep the law as a further late added condition. That's the objection. And Paul knows it's coming. And his response was that this understanding of how salvation history unfolds is like the villain overtly altering the deal. They had not, these these men from Jerusalem trying to impose circumcision had not correctly understood what the Mosaic Covenant was about, what it did. Rather, Paul said that God never his deals. God stands by his covenants. And he doesn't change them. So, despite how life under the Mosaic Covenant looked very different than life looked for Abraham as he lived in tents, God still dealt with his people in both covenants according to the same promise for salvation. Right? If we had a, if we have a chat after the service and I greet you with a, a smile and a handshake if we're, maybe I won't, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I'm wearing a jacket and a tie. Right? You, you know that that interaction is, is actually not different in substance than if we had a chat yesterday at our cookout when I greeted you with a smile and a, and a handshake while wearing jeans. Put on different clothes, but I'm treating you the same way, right? Maybe the outward trappings have changed, but I acted the same toward you. And Paul said, that is what happens in the transition from Abraham to Moses. So the context, right, to sum this up, the context is that Paul continues to argue that God treated his people according to one promise of salvation by faith alone throughout redemptive history. That brings us to our second point, the content. So we've tried to frame our passage within the wider issues of Galatians, and so now we can dive into these three little verses that we're considering specifically today. So, So Paul started this section with an analogy in verse 15. And he tells you that, doesn't he? To give a human example. Well, let me give you an illustration, guys. To give you a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul pointed to the same thing that bothered us, or at least me, in Star Wars, right? If you make a deal, you don't get to change it. That's the way the world works. You have to keep it. That's why we make a deal. That's why we make a contract. That's why we make a covenant in the first place. Paul noted that we all know, all of us know, that this is true and that proper structures prevent us from changing our covenants, our our relationships and agreements with one another. And as we'll see, Paul's big punchline is that if this is true at the, at merely the human level, well then it's all the more true with God. 
God is more full than we are. If we don't get to change our agreements, our deals, our covenants, well, God isn't even going to try. The specific covenant that Paul had a view as he makes this case is that, that God had not altered his covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 16, right? He, we, we saw this in, in chapter, or in Genesis 17 as we read it, and, and Paul draws on it here in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, quoting from Genesis 17. And it does not say, and to offsprings, which would refer to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, let me tell you who it is, who is Christ. In both Genesis 12, 7 and 17, 7, God promised a blessing to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, Paul highlighted that this covenant, as it focused on a singular descendant, always had one thing in view. Jesus Christ. That was the scope of fulfillment for this covenant from the beginning. Christ was the content, the content of the Abrahamic covenant, long before the most covenant was delivered atop Mount Sinai. And in that covenant that had Christ as its content, Abraham believed and was justified. Paul knew his readers likely understood those, that, that Abrahamic provident, uh, sorry, yeah, that a- Abrahamic promise in a plural sense. Lots of offsprings, which actually isn't a word. Microsoft Word likes to, uh, come after me every time I type that. Uh, lots of descendants. Paul's saying that's not what he means. The people who descend from Abraham are his offsprings. There are passages, indeed, even Genesis 17, that point that direction to some degree, too. So how do we reckon with Paul's point that this is a clearly a collective word, but I'm saying it means one? How do we grapple with that? We recognize that Paul was truly after the heart, the core of God's covenants with his people. Despite how others, other descendants may be kind of in the mix, ultimately all of God's people are made right. Ultimately this promise has to do with people being justified because of one singular individual who has always been the sum of God's covenants with his people. Christ Jesus. Now let's let's take special note here because there are two points that we need to mark as we try to get a hold of what to do with this. One we're gonna we'll take up the rest of this point, and then the second one will will be our final point. So first, as we think about what to do with this, let's let's come back to our understanding of the covenant of grace. Right, we've unpacked this in previous sermons, uh, and we want to try to get our head back around that distinction between the substance of the covenant, external administration, 
What does that mean? Right? It, in every covenant that God made with his people after the fall, God delivered one substance. Namely, Christ and his benefits. That's the heart and soul of every covenant that God made since the fall. Christ and his benefits. But he delivered that substance in various ways, in various administrations. Now, let's, let's try to make that clear. When we were in Jude, when we were working through the book of Jude, I illustrated this point with a trip to the ice cream shop, right? Now, I know I'm going to recycle this, but here's why. I know I'm doing this, but I, I kind of have a sense that this illustration has taken on a life of its own in our congregation. And that's fine, but I want to make sure that we tie it to the point. So that's, that's why I'm gonna, it's, it's all well and good. Let's, yeah, let's remember the illustration, but I just want to go back over it so that we remember what it's illustrating. Okay, when you, when you go to the shop to buy ice cream, to, you, you know, you're not, not Sainsbury's or something, but when you go to the ice cream shop, what you're gonna buy every time is ice cream. The substance. It may be given to you in a cup or a cone, which administers substance to you in very different ways. So you get it in two different containers, but it's the same stuff. It's the same substance in a different administration. And that's what happens with Christ and his benefits throughout the various covenants. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the New Covenant. Same stuff, Christ and his benefits, in different containers. But let's put another illustration on this. We, I really hope that we actually get this, this notion in our bones. Cause this is, this helps us read our Bible. This helps us walk with God and see His faithfulness. So let's put another illustration on this. Most of you have a mobile phone, right? I think, yeah. And almost everyone, at least, has some sort of cover on your phone. You have a case wrapped around it. No, no matter what that cover looks like, okay, the, the phone stays the same. If I have an, if I have an iPhone, right, I can put a blue cover on it, I can put a red cover on it, a black, a gray, a polka dotted cover, and it's still the same phone. It may be a thin cover and look just like the phone. It may, it may be thick and bulky and protective, or it may have like a little pair of dog ears on top. It can look very different, but in any case, the phone is the same, just in a different package. And that's how salvation works throughout the whole of Scripture. You have one thing, Christ and his benefits delivered to you by faith, packaged in different covenants. That's how salvation has always worked, and that is Paul's points. That is how all the biblical covenants work since the fall. Paul wrote that the Abrahamic covenant ratified the promise of Christ, right? That's where he lands. Christ was the content of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision taught us about Christ, 
before he came because Christ was cut off for his people to bear the curse of sin. Even though the law characterized the Mosaic Covenant, it too delivered Christ by faith alone. How? Well, animal sacrifices taught us about how Jesus would bear the penalty of our sin. They put on full display that Christ would endure God's wrath to provide forgiveness for his people. And his people understood through those things what Christ would do for them. They trusted in him even before he came. Believers received Christ himself and his benefits of justification, sanctification, one-day glorification, even before Christ came, always by faith alone, no matter what the packaging looked like that taught about him. Now, maybe this sounds out of the ordinary. Our confession, though, tells us this exact thing. I think this is a really useful uh, section of the Westminster Confession, so I hope this might grab you as well. So, so chapter 8, paragraph 6 says, Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ until after his incarnation, now catch this part, yet, yet, so the first part has said, yes, there was a moment in history when Christ died on the cross, earned your salvation. Yet, the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof. So all the stuff that we get from Christ and his death were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices. So just as the preaching of God's word and the administration of the sacraments deliver God's promises to you, and that's how you learn about them and receive them, believe them, well, God had means of grace in the Old Testament too. Promises, types, and sacrifices that delivered Christ and his benefits to those people. So our first point to note from Paul's Discussion about Abraham is that the substance of the covenant of grace is the same throughout redemptive history. In other words, in other words, the content of our verses and of the covenants is Christ and his benefits received by faith alone. I hope that that phrase registers and sticks in your mind. Christ and his benefits received by faith alone. That brings us, though, to our final point, our counsel. So we've, we've thought about the first big takeaway from these verses, namely an understanding of the covenant of grace. And now we come to our second one. And here's, here's where I really think we focus to bring this home for ourselves. Okay, which, which follows out of what we've considered. The, the, the last point gave us a theological foundation for what we're about to do. Abraham is the paradigm of the Christian life. Abraham 
is the paradigm of the Christian life. That's Paul's point in verses 17 and 18 when he explains what he was after by quoting the Abrahamic promise. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if an inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So he wants the Galatians to see, to understand that the point of the Mosaic law was not to impose a condition over and above faith for salvation. God is not a villain. He does not alter his deals. He stands by his covenants, and he offered an inheritance to Abraham and his family of faith on the basis of a promise to be received by faith, not earned by works of the law. Now Paul will explain, as we'll come to the next time we're in this letter, Paul will explain the purpose of the Mosaic Law, what it does do, as he develops this argument for the rest of the letter. But that is for another time, and here the Scripture's point is that whatever the Mosaic Covenant's function was, it wasn't, it wasn't to undermine salvation by faith alone. What does that mean for you? If, As we consider this notion that Abraham is the paradigm of the Christian life, what does that mean for you? Let's think culturally for a moment. I, th- I actually think this is really helpful, just as we think about our place in the world. There's a big difference, isn't there, between the way that Abraham and Moses, Israel, I mean really, as they fit into the wider world around them? What do we mean? When, when God gave the law as a covenant to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, it constituted Israel as a nation. They lived in the theocracy, in the promised land. The glory of Israel with the temple and the visually driven worship in decoration and elaborate, and elaborate actions of sacrifice, these things belong to the Mosaic Covenant. Glory in the promised land was under Moses. How does scripture describe Abraham? We've already seen it in, a, in Genesis 17 that we read. And when Abraham says it, and he says it again in Genesis 23, verse 4, Abraham said to the Hittites, the wider world around him, right? God's people speaking to the wider world around him. I'm a sojourner, a pilgrim, and a foreigner among you. Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived in tents because he looked ahead in faith to a city that has foundations, namely, Hebrews tells us, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Abraham's a pilgrim, a sojourner, outside the glory of the theocracy. How does the New Testament speak of us as believers in the church? 
First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. I think too often we as Christians long for life under the theocracy, assuming that the church is supposed to have that outward cultural glory and prestige. Scripture urges us to look not to Israel, but Abraham for our pattern of life. We take our counsel, we take our counsel from a pilgrim, from a sojourner, because we are sojourners and exiles. Brothers and sisters, what this tells us is not it is that we are not home. This world is not our promised land. We are sojourners and exiles here outside the land of glory at this point. The, the, this is critically important, I think, as we reckon with our lives every day. We, because we live in an age that at times at least is increasingly uncomfortable for us. We look around even, even in the week behind us, right? At, at terrible things happening around the globe, things that even horribly affect God's people. That trails into our own lives, doesn't it? We, we know that we're not the cultural elites. We know that we don't have sway. So what do we do? Well, believers, we remember this isn't the city where our hope is. This is not our city. Our city has foundations. Everlasting foundations. And it's not left to us. It's not on it. The burden is not ours to carry to build that city. Christ will give it to us when he comes back. You don't have to find it by your effort. It will be a gift to God's people. So in this age, it's good for us if we realize that we don't live like we're under Moses. Both under the law as a condition or even striving after the cultural prestige. We live in hope because we rest in God's promises, like Abraham, the man of faith. We do not look to the world around us, but to what God will give us, what he has promised. And so we live by faith. Now, that means, believers, 
as we think more close, that, that helps us situate ourselves in the culture as the church. But we can think more closely than this too. God has not added the, God, God made a promise and that is salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. God didn't add the law to you to be right with him. And that helps us think about our relationship to one another. Right? If God does not do that to us, believers, let us not add the law to one another either. The, the church, this church, is the community of faith. And so we unite in that, in Jesus. That is our point of coming together. If, catch one, please. If the Mosaic Law added 430, 430 years after the Abrahamic Covenant could not change the promise, then cultural or political debates that come literally 4,000 years later cannot change that promise either. They cannot define conditions for salvation or church unity, however much we might like to disagree with each other about these things. And that's fine. You can disagree. And we love each other anyway. Because those things are not our point of unity. Remember, remember as we ground this in the text, right, that Paul is unpacking the mechanics of justification by faith alone across the centuries to get Christians eating at the same table again. Justification by faith is being leveraged for church unity. Faith binds us together. And that's a beautiful thing. Christ has in fact rescued us, but not by yourself. He's rescued us together. His death has redeemed us from all our failures in breaking the law, and his life has earned our citizenship in that everlasting city, that city with foundations. And here and now, we have to remember that we often see the love of Jesus for us most clearly when it is reflected to us through the face of our neighbor in the church, showing us the kindness of Christ by accepting us despite our flaws, despite our shortcomings, disagreements, just as Jesus Christ has and always will welcome us to himself by grace alone. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that your promise is unchanging. Throughout the ages, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's not a new thing. Whatever is new about the new covenant, it's not Christ Jesus. Because he was given to your people throughout the ages. To be received by faith, salvation was never earned. And we pray that we find rest in that. We pray that we find comfort, as the world is at times uncomfortable. For us to some degree, in other places around the globe, 
terribly difficult to be a Christian. And so we pray that all of us are built up in that truth. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who do not, one, who, who do not live the life of faith as if you have added the law to us. Help us to live after the pattern of Abraham, trusting in your promises. But help us also to be people who do not add laws to one another, as if we are bound together by something other than Jesus Christ himself. This is a wonderfully diverse congregation. And we pray that we cherish being diverse, even in our viewpoints about various things going on here, in the world around us, wherever it may be, and give us unity at LCPC. We are thankful that you have done this over many years and sustained this congregation. And we're just, we're crying out to you in a time of lots of changes that you would continue to do this. As we, you have in your providence put us in this letter that is about this. And in another letter in the evening that is about this. And we would be remiss than not to respond in prayer and in striving after sanctification personally in these things. Ask these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.